Our theme is with the king, and I I like it because I think that sometimes in the storyline of the Bible, I think that we often overlook the idea or the concept or the teaching, the running theme throughout the entirety of the Bible of the kingdom of God. If you look at what Jesus taught in Mark's gospel, he comes along in chapter 1 and verse 14, and he makes the comment, or it says of him, that Jesus comes to the Galilee region, and he goes out preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. For Jesus, the concept or the teaching of the gospel, what was the good news, was inseparable from the teaching of the kingdom, that the two things were were really synonymous, that the two things bled over into each other so much. In fact, if you look at Jesus' teachings anywhere in the gospel, um, you'll find that almost exclusively the things that Jesus taught about or addressed had to do with the kingdom of God. In fact, not just the things that Jesus said, but also the things that Jesus did. If you look at the miracles of Jesus... Even those happen, I think, not just to prove Jesus' power or deity or care. I think that his miracles were giving you a glimpse into what he was doing and where he is taking you. And that's the simple thought that he's ushering in a kingdom where he's going to be king over redeemed and restored people in a place. So that means that his miracles are not so much a suspension of the natural order. They are instead the restoration of the natural order. Where Jesus is making the world right as it was originally intended to be because God never intended and only will briefly allow for our world to have pain and and sickness and suffering and hunger and death and evil as a part of our, our life here on planet earth. And so what I'm telling you is this, that each miracle of Jesus is not just really a challenge to your mind, it's meant to be a promise to your heart. And the promise is that the world that you and I want is coming And that's why Jesus came. It's precisely why he came. You see, Jesus came to take back, to redeem creation, and he came to set up to restore his kingdom. And scripture says we're not redeemed with corruptible things like silver and gold. We are purchased with incorruptible, imperishable things. We are purchased with the the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's precisely why he came. And like you just saw in this video, really the tale of humanity can be summed up in the tale or the story of three different gardens. The Garden of Eden where God creates a perfect place, but hope was lost because of one man's disobedience. Creation was lost. But then you skip ahead in your Bible, push fast forward all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, where you find Jesus, one man, through his obedience, restoring hope once again. And the kingdom in that moment and creation was redeemed by Jesus willingly choosing to become your substitute, my substitute, and take our sin upon himself. But push fast forward long enough to the end of the book, where you find a third and final garden. Remember Jesus on the cross? He looked at one of the thieves next to him, and when he cried out for mercy to Jesus, he said, today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is actually literally translated, today you'll be with me in the garden enclosed. We believe and we look forward to a future garden where the creation and the kingdom will be restored once and for all where we will live in the heavenly city because the heavenly city collides with the redeemed and restored earth, where peace and justice and love and unity reign supreme for all of eternity. We call the place heaven. It's the place where Jesus stands triumphantly and says, behold, I make all things new. You see, we know how the story ends. If we fast forward to the end of the book, it ends with Jesus as the triumphant king, and it ends with us. We are called, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called the sons and daughters of God. 
That's where we're headed. That's the message of the kingdom. We're going to be in a place where every wrong will be made right and where we sing the song of Moses. And a quote from that song is found in Scripture where it says that we sing just and true are all of your judgments. Or in real simple terms, we sing God fair and right is everything that you've done. You see, the kingdom, and this is our theme, the kingdom reminds me not that things are are promised to be easy, but that things are promised to one day be made right, that things are promised to one day be fixed or be good again in the world. That's the message and the theme of the kingdom, and I hope you know that is the hope that Scripture offers to the Christian, that though this life may be hard and though this life may be hurtful and be full of disappointments, that you and I look forward to a future day where every wrong is made right and where every tear is wiped away where we stand side by side with our king who now calls us his own children. It's fantastic news. And it's the good news that Jesus brought. And so our theme with the king, it's really trying to give a reminder that God is working on a global and eternal scale. And that you and I, we, if you think about it, Jesus invited people into his work and into what he was doing in the world by inviting people to follow him as a disciple. What God was doing in the world, Jesus invited others into what he was accomplishing by inviting them to follow him as a disciple. And so that's what I want to talk to you about tonight, is what Jesus' invitation looks like. The invitation he gave to people back in the stories of the Bible, and I believe it's also the invitation that he gives to you today. So we're going to talk briefly about what it looks like to follow Jesus. That's our theme or our topic of discussion today, and it's one of my favorite stories in the gospel. It takes place very, very early in the gospel narrative. And in the first century, when Jesus arrives on the scene, although Rome was very much in power, Jewish culture was still alive and well. And a part of Jewish culture was that there was a group of people who were very esteemed, who were respected in the community. They were known as rabbis. They were teachers. Their job, the expectation, was for them to teach the people and explain God and his word, his revealed his revealed word to them, to to make sense of it for the common people. And the rabbis, they began teaching at a very young age of just 30 years old. It's the same age that Jesus began teaching. And the first order of business for a rabbi was to go and secure disciples, to go and call followers to follow after him and carry on his teaching and traditions. And it's precisely what Jesus did. You see, in Jewish culture, the one that Jesus entered in the first century, if you were a young person, you'd be in three different forms of school if you were lucky. The first form of school was something called Bet Sefer. Bet Sefer was from a young age all the way up until the age of 12. And the expectation, amongst other things that you'd learn, is that you would memorize the, uh, the, the first five books of the Old Testament, which is pretty hardcore, isn't it? I guess there wasn't much to do back then, right? No, but seriously, that's crazy, right? The first five books of the Bible, that they would quiz you on them, and then if you could recite different sections of Scripture as they would cue you or remind you of the simple first line of it, if you could continue the remainder of the section or the remainder of, of what that chapter, as we now view it, of what it would say, then you would be passed along to the next uh, set of schooling. From Bet Sefer, you'd move on to Bet Talmud. And you'd be expected to memorize in a course of basically two years even more of the Old Testament. And the best and the brightest, they'd move on to a third uh, form of schooling in Hebrew society. It was called Bet Midrash. 
And they would then begin to apply, much like you one day will apply for different universities or schools that you want to attend in the future. You would apply to follow a rabbi in a very similar fashion. For most people, and for most of us, at some point along those lines, we wouldn't have made the cut. I'll just speak for me. I won't assume for you, because some of you might have made the cut. Good for you. For the rest of us, at some point, someone would have told us, we're not going to pass you along to the next phase of your schooling. Instead, we want you to go learn the family job. At some point, someone would have said, you don't measure up, you're not good enough. And the sign of that to your community is that you'd come back home and you'd join the family trade. And so if you were back a working man in your neighborhood, it meant at some point someone told you that you didn't measure up, that you weren't good enough. Now, you don't follow a rabbi like you follow someone on Twitter, though. You follow someone on Twitter, and, and you know, if you really like what they say, you, you, they might get a like. If you're really, really digging what they're saying, then, then it might even merit a retweet every once in a while. But that's not what Jesus was inviting people to. To follow a rabbi wasn't just even about knowing what your rabbi knew. It was about doing what your rabbi would do. Really, the goal of every follower, please, please don't, don't already check out and be gone. The goal of every follower who's invited to follow a rabbi the goal of every disciple is to be like their rabbi. More than just knowing what he knows, more than just doing what he do, the whole goal is to inherit the teachings and the behaviors and the attitudes and everything about that person to become like that person in the world. And so if you went to a rabbi to apply to be their disciple, for many of us, we'd probably be told, you don't make the cut, go back and learn the family trade. But the few, the very, very select few, the pride of the town would be the person who would hear the invitation, follow me. After much testing, after being grilled with question after question, where they'd quote the first sentence of a psalm and you'd have to quote the remainder of it. Think about this. Jesus hangs on a cross. One of the things he says from the cross is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct quotation of Psalm 22, the very first part of that. For everyone who knew the scriptures, not just his followers, but the religious leaders who were there, all of their minds would have gone back to the remainder of Psalm 22 that gives the play-by-play -play of the suffering that God would endure for his people. And so it was a practice back then. But all of us would long to hear the invitation, follow me. So I want to read you very quickly one of the stories of a young person in Scripture who heard that invitation. It's found here, Mark chapter 2. If you look in your Bible at verse 13, it says, And then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Just, just push pause one moment. I just want you to be able to picture the scene. The other Gospels, there's three that record this story, and the other Gospels give us different details, one of them being that this takes place in Capernaum. And Capernaum's this little city that still you can visit the ruins of today on the Sea of Galilee. It's a, it's a fishing city. It was along a major trade route, and historians tell us that the tax office or the tax booth was an elevated platform that the tax official would sit up above at the crossroads of that trade route and watching the boats come into port who have caught the fish. It's, 
It's Peter's hometown. And remember, Peter was a fisherman. As he and his friends would come off the boat dragging their fish, the taxman would lean down and tell them, this is what you owe me. He was elevated so that nothing slipped by him. Every chance he got, he nickeled and dimed the people who'd come by. Historians even tell us that he could hike up your taxes depending on how many wheels were on the barrel that you were pushing across uh, the little walkway that he would have sat elevated above. And we know that Jesus was what's referred to as a peripatetic teacher, that he would walk and teach often. So picture the scene. Jesus is walking. A a crowd of people have gathered to hear this new teacher and healer, and they want to see what he's going to say. And so they're walking quickly but very quietly to keep up and to hear his every word, and then they watch him stop. At the base of that platform of that guy, Levi, the tax man, And here's the exchange that takes place. He passed by, he sees Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office, and he says to him, follow me. So he arose, Levi did, and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus was dining, goes to Levi's house for dinner, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for they were many, and they followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with these tax collectors and sinners, and they said to his disciples, how is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Let me give a real simple explanation here. When they come and they're, they're antagonizing Jesus, like, how dare you sit with that guy? Well, that guy, the tax collector, was very low in Hebrew society. And he said, also with sinners. Sinners was a designation that was given for people who gave up, who quit on trying to please God, who no longer cared Yeah, it's a part of our Jewish heritage and our culture. Yeah, 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 but we're done with it. We're over it. How dare you, Jesus, sit with those people? And he said, because I came not for the healthy, I came for the sick. You know, all of Jesus' disciples were taken from the workforce, which is interesting because it means that all of them were passed over by someone else, that all of them at some point were told, you don't measure up, you're not good enough. As they went through their schooling, at some point they were pushed aside and they were caused to go into the workforce. You have this guy, he's a tax collector. You have other guys, they're fishermen joining the family trade. You you have all sorts of different occupations that Jesus pulls people from. You see, Jesus wanted these guys, even if others didn't, even if they themselves didn't feel good enough about themselves, which is really, really great news for me. Because for me personally, I can try so hard to be or feel good enough. But the harsh, harsh reality is that I'm not. It's not just that I don't even feel like I meet others' expectations or God's. I don't meet my own. And it can be so, so disheartening. And I can feel at times as though it disqualifies me. But Jesus wanted them still. He wants me still. And Jesus chose me anyway. You see, there was no test for this man to take, no standard to meet. In fact, Scripture says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, Aaron told you the other day uh, about him growing up in church. Um, I grew up in church as well. My dad was also a pastor. Um, Aaron grew up loving God, which was great. I grew up uh, not loving God. I I grew up frustrated with God. I I grew up frustrated, I think, mostly with my dad. My dad was a hard man, and he was difficult to please, and I'd become convinced I'd never please him. He'd always be agitated with me. And I started to project those thoughts onto God. And I thought, this is, this is not even worth trying. 
If I feel like I'm a constant walking disappointment, not just to my family, but to God, then why am I even bothering to deal with all of this pressure? So at some point, as a young high school student, I just decided, forget it, I'm done. I don't want to think about it or deal with it anymore. Who wants that kind of pressure when you feel like, like why set yourself up to fail? Why, why live under the pressure of something that you know that I'll never, ever measure up to? But then one day, I remember hearing someone teach a Bible study. I don't remember listening to much of anything that he said until he started talking about this term that I remember hearing many times in church but never understood, and the term was grace. And I remember him talking about what grace looked like and the grace of God, what it could be in my life. The simple thought of grace is that God's unlike any other person. In fact, grace is so foreign. It's so otherworldly. It's like Superman coming down from the sky or kryptonite entering an atmosphere. It doesn't belong in our world. It doesn't work in our world. We don't find it in our world because grace is so different from the way that every other person treats us because every other person you'll ever interact with other than God, they'll always keep score. But God keeps promises. He doesn't keep score. I started to understand that my relationship with God would not be built up on my own merit, but instead it would be based on his mercy. That's crazy. Do you understand how different that is from every other major religion in the world? Every other religion is going to give you a list of requirements of things that you must do to reach and to please God or reach enlightenment. But the story of the Bible is that God left heaven to reach down and touch and save you, to offer you forgiveness. He took your place. And so rather than a list of requirements for you, instead, it's news. It's good news. It's gospel. News. uh, of things that past tense were done for you that you simply have to believe, excuse me, that you simply have to believe. Not a list of requirements, but instead it's it's information, it's news about what God did on your behalf. And when I understood that, that dramatically changed my life. That dramatically changed the trajectory of my future. And as a junior in high school, I became a person of faith and I thought, if this is the character and the nature of God and this is what he's really inviting me into, then this is the kind of God that I'm willing to to follow. Then this is the kind of life that I'm wanting to lead. See, Levi was a tax man, and even in our modern world, it was something that was frowned upon, but back then, far more so. Uh, Back in his day, there was even more animosity towards the tax man. In fact, it was, although a very uh, lucrative position, it came with a very, very heavy social cost. See, in Jewish culture, they were viewed really as the lowest of the lows, the worst of the worst. Jesus himself picked up on the the cultural climate. In Matthew 5, he says to his disciples that you should love your enemies. He says, if you just love those who love you, he said, what reward do you have? Are you no different from the tax collectors? He knew that using them as an example would be like, those people? That that was the social climate that Jesus entered into. And for Levi, by taking this job, he was, uh, historians tell us he forfeits his ability to ever be a witness in a courtroom because he's immediately deemed as a tax collector to be not trustworthy. And historians tell us that he was also, uh, he, he was uh, barred from the local synagogue, from basically the church's gathering place, that they wouldn't allow someone like that to go there. It was the community's way of communicating to that person that we've rejected you and so has God. By you doing this, you've gone too far. You're not good enough for us, and you'll never be good enough for God. Levi, the tax collector, was viewed at the very least as a failure in his community, or worse, as a traitor, working with Rome to extort and take advantage of his countrymen, and something I'm sure that he would have often been reminded of by people around him. 
So here comes Jesus walking along the road, and there's a crowd of people surrounding him. And Jesus stops, he pauses at the tax collector's booth, and everyone would have held their breath. Everyone would have anticipated that Jesus was going to look up at him and give him an earful and say, how dare you? Who do you think you are? They thought they anticipated that Jesus would call him out publicly. But it was shocking what he did. It was scandalous what he did. And it would have shocked and silenced the crowd immediately because Jesus says, follow me. They must have assumed that Jesus was mistaken or that Jesus was confused or they would have made the assumption, just wait until Jesus figures out who this guy really is. Listen, listen. Just wait until he figures out who he really is. Just wait till he sees him for who he really is. But can I tell you something? It is the mystery of mysteries that you are fully known by God and yet fully loved by him. You know, I think for all of us, we have this this deep-seated desire to be loved. But to be loved and not known is really shallow. But to be known and not loved, I think, is our greatest fear. But it's a crazy thing, and I think it's our greatest desire to be fully known and fully loved by someone. And I believe that that person is Jesus. And Jesus comes around, and he knows, he knows, he knows, he knows. It wasn't a surprise to him who Levi was. He knew who he was, and yet he loved him anyway. Can I just tell you guys something here? Look at me for just a moment. I'd venture to say that for, for some of you, you're still here observing Christianity. And I'm, I'm thrilled that you're here and you're respectful and, and great. Good on you for like listening and, and thinking this through. I'm glad you're processing it. Like I said, I was a junior in high school when it finally sunk in for me. And I hope the same thing happens for you. But for many of you, you've already made a decision about what you think of Jesus. And can I tell you that in your future, your faith will come to a crossroads many times But oftentimes, you'll be stuck in that crossroads, and it probably is not going to be because of you having doubts now about what you think of this book, or what you think of God's existence, or the historicity of Jesus, or or what he really did in suffering and dying on a cross, or whether or not he actually rose from the dead. I, I don't think it'll so much be doubt in those areas. But the crossroads in my faith, more often than not, is when I come to those moments in time where I push pause, and I give myself a hard look. And I begin to question, how could it be possible that someone could know me and yet love me? How could it be possible that God could see me beneath the surface and know me better than I know myself and see all of the brokenness, see all of the selfishness, see all of the twisted nature inside me, and yet God could look at me and say, I'm committed to you, I love you. And for you and I at times, we get so overwhelmed by the thought and think, I'm not good enough, I haven't earned it, I don't deserve it, and at times we throw deuces and that's it. But can I tell you, in the crossroads of your faith in your future, there's no greater truth or no deeper uh, part or central theme in Scripture than the fact that you really are fully known and yet fully loved by God and that He is committed to you even when you are faithless. He remains faithful. It is the mystery of all mysteries. You see, Jesus willingly chose his disciples, and I believe he chose you and I. And he completely knew what he was getting, and I believe at the same time, he also knows completely who and what you are becoming. Because being asked to be a disciple is always an invitation for transformation. Three very simple thoughts. 
The first is that to be asked to be a disciple of Jesus, to answer his request when he says, come and follow me, is always an invitation for transformation. You see, one of the trademarks of Jesus' ministry is that Jesus pursued and chose those who no one else wanted, even choosing those who were most hated. Jesus willingly associated himself with failures. Jesus treated failures as if they had never failed. It was scandalous, it was, for Jesus to touch a leper. But it was even more scandalous for Jesus to invite a tax collector to come and follow him. And yet Jesus showed no hesitation in either situation. You see, for the crowd, they had no way of seeing what Jesus saw. You see, what Jesus saw in the flawed life of Levi, the tax man, is he saw a Matthew who would become a great evangelist and a world-shaping gospel writer. He would use his unique skills with the pen. In the future, Matthew would become the very first to write an eyewitness account of the life of Jesus. The church today, we are indebted to this man who uh, once was hated by everyone. He's now the guy that we give credit to for writing the gospel according to Matthew. Levi, the covetous rip-off artist, would have his name and his identity changed to Matthew. It literally means the gift of God. You see, being asked to be a disciple is always an invitation for transformation. I believe that God, yes, he sees you as you are, and he loves you, and yet I also believe that he sees you as you can be, your potential, the person that he will shape you and cause you to become, and that he's committed to that process. Here's a second thing very quickly is that following Jesus is also an invitation to carry on a legacy. Following Jesus, if you're taking notes, just write it down. It's also an invitation to carry on a legacy. In Luke 5, it tells you that Levi's response to Jesus' invitation was that Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. If you stick with Jewish culture, many biblical scholars would agree that probably 10 of the 12 guys who followed Jesus were very young, below the age of 18, probably in between the ages of 14 to 18. The two exceptions to that are probably Levi, who by having this job probably had reached the age of 18, and the other guy would probably have been Peter, who was married, and typically in that society that happened at 18. Praise God, you've got more time than that to make that big of a decision or to have your parents make it for you in that culture. Um, But even in the storyline of the Gospels, if you care, there's a moment where Jesus tells him, Peter, go and find a a coin in a fish that will pay my tax and yours, Peter. The temple tax that was due was only required of people who were 20 years and above. So the assumption is that the rest of the guys were probably under the age of 20. Now, why do I bring this up? Because this is not just a random fun fact. I bring this up because Jesus as a rabbi entrusted his mission and his message to his disciples who were just a bunch of teenagers who had already been passed over by the world. He trained that small group of teenagers to carry out his message of life and of hope to the whole world. And if they failed to pass it on, well, then the the life and message of Jesus, the mission of God the Father in heaven would have utterly failed because the the message and the mission of Jesus would have died on a cross with Jesus. You see, the call to discipleship, the invitation to follow me is always an invitation to carry on a legacy, which is an invitation that they accepted and a mission that they carried out to their generation. And and let me just remind you, as a follower of Jesus, that you and I have that same invitation and mission. In fact, just last night, you were reminded of it. Remember Matthew 5? You read it. Someone else quoted it. (laughs) 
Good on you, Ben. Uh, but uh, the story happens where a crowd uh, gathers to hear from Jesus. Jesus looks at the crowd, sees their needs, withdraws with his disciples in order to equip them to reach and meet the need of the people. And when he withdraws, he tells them, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, in that little passage, and I'm not going to reteach it to you because you just heard it last night, but one thing I do want to point out to you, in that passage when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, the you is emphatic, which means that it should read or that you should hear it. Hang on, focus, focus. You can do this. It should read, it should be understood to say that you are the only salt of the earth, that you are the only light in this world. You see, without you and I carrying out the mission and the message of our rabbi, the world would continue to stumble in darkness, and the world would continue to rot and decay. You see, as a disciple of Jesus, you and I, in many ways, are the world's only hope because we are the ones that he has commissioned to carry out his mission and message in the world. Jesus could have had it written in the clouds. He could have sent angels to creep people out and scare them into the process of believing. But instead, he chose Levi. Instead, he chose Peter. Instead, he chose James and John. He chose Trevor, and he chose you. See, I believe that the world needs you as a disciple, and here's my challenge to you. I would challenge you to make your primary goal in your life and future. Listen, please. Make your primary goal, if you're a believer in Jesus, make your primary goal in your life and future to be like Jesus. There are a lot of other goals you're going to have in life. There are going to be a lot of other things that are worth dreaming and worth chasing. But may the greatest concern and greatest passion of our lives be to be like our rabbi, not just to know what Jesus knows, but to be like him in the world that we live in. Because following Jesus is always an invitation to carry on a legacy. One last thought, and I'll just close with this, by reminding you that following Jesus is also an invitation for relationship that it's an invitation for relationship. When Jesus called Levi to follow him in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, there's a, there's a linguist by the name of Dr. Wiest, and he says that it should be rendered in your Bible as Jesus looking at Levi and saying, Levi, follow with me. Because Jesus' invitation to him wasn't just to walk behind him, but it was to walk closely beside him. You see, it's always an invitation for relationship. Look ahead one chapter at chapter 3, if you look down in verse 14, where it talks about a brief summary of Jesus appointing the 12 apostles. It says, then he appointed the 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. What was the primary purpose that Jesus called his disciples for? It says right here that they might be with him. You see, he invited them first to know him long before he required or asked them to go out and talk about him. You see, to follow Jesus is always an invitation for relationship. And can I just tell you that God's great goal for your life is not simply discipleship. You see, the Bible tells you that God purchased you with the ransom of his son so that he could adopt you as his own child. His goal all along was and is adoption. Not what he could get from you or or not what you could do for him. His simple goal was getting you, redeeming, restoring, and adopting you. God's end goal for me is to be his son, 
to know him and to be known and loved by him. In fact, we'll close by doing this. Do me a favor, flip all the way to the right, to the very end of your Bible. Way to the right. Revelation chapter 21. You're a chapter away from the close of the book. And what we're looking at in Revelation 21 is future things that were not yet seen in our world, but it's the hope of every Christian. And in Revelation 21, it says it this way, beginning in verse 3, it says, And then I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things, they've passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write these words, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. And I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Can I just have you push pause just for a moment and think? The great goal of God, if you fast forward to the end of the book, is that he has redeemed and restored the world and that he, once again, is its rightful king. One of the weirdest moments in the gospel is when Satan comes to Jesus to tempt him, and he says, if you bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus doesn't look at him and go, like, hey, cute uh, dummy, like, you can't claim to have authority over this world. Who do you think you are? It'd be like if I took you to a parking lot of a high-end car dealership and said, see that Lamborghini there? You give me 60 bucks and the keys are yours because it belongs to me. And for those of you who know me, you're like, you don't even have a car with air conditioning. Like, what are you talking about? You'd be like, hey, that's cute. You're dumb. Like, I'm smarter than that. You don't have the authority to make that kind of an offer to me. Jesus gives no such response to Satan, though. The temptation really was, I will give you authority back. But instead, what Jesus does is he embraces a cross to purchase it back. And in the end, at the end of the book, his great goal is for him, once again, to redeem and restore the world and for him to reign as king over it. But did you see his goal for you? Did you see where you found yourself? It's at that very last little section that we read. Verse 7, and he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. See, you and I at times can have all sorts of opinions about what God wants from us, or we can feel all sorts of pressure, self-imposed or imposed from somewhere or someone else. But the great goal of God is for you to be adopted by him and loved as his child. Do me a favor, you can close your Bible here. In the Bible, beginning in the New Testament, in order for us to understand, well, what does God want and what is my relationship with him meant to look like? God starts with a prophet by the name of Jeremiah, and he takes him to a potter's house. He says, Jeremiah, I want you to look at that lump of clay, and I want you to look at the way that the potter is reaching his hands inside and taking what you, as someone, me included, who doesn't do pottery, I look at it as a lump of dirt. It's worthless. If you offered to sell it to me for 20 bucks, I'd say, heck no, I can get dirt in my own backyard. Thank you very much. 
But for the potter, he saw great value in that lump that was there because he saw the potential of what he would shape it into. And God said, and I am the potter and you are the clay. And what other people look at and say there's no value or meaning or purpose in your life, he said, I can shape your life into something beautiful. And so you and I, as first described in a comparison in the Bible, we are, in a sense, an inanimate object, but one that's greatly loved by God. One that the rest of the world outside of the potter's house would look at and say there's no value, but not to the potter. But from an inanimate object, all of a sudden we become a member of the animal kingdom when all of a sudden we're compared to sheep, and he is the shepherd who overlooks and cares for the sheep. In fact, Jesus in the New Testament says that he is the good shepherd. You see, the health and well-being of the sheep is completely dependent upon the care and the character of its shepherd. And Jesus says, I'll be your good shepherd. Loved by him, cared for, nurtured by him. But then Jesus calls these disciples to follow him. And all of a sudden, what looked like just dirt or a member of the animal kingdom, upgrade for you and I, we're now officially human beings, we're servants, who all of a sudden carry the the great mission and message of our master. But Jesus one day looks on the night that he'd be betrayed at his disciples, and he says, I no longer call you servants, I now call you my friends. And when things almost felt as if they couldn't get more intimate, or if God couldn't think of another parallel that we would understand with greater clarity to understand how he felt about us, with something that we understood from our lives, from our world, God then starts referring to us as his children. God then starts referring to us as his bride. When he could pick no other other example that would express more love or value than that of the love of a father for his child, or that of a bridegroom's anticipation and love and passion for his bride. God says, those are the greatest experiences you'll have in life, and that is the way that I love you and am committed to you. And that is the great goal when Jesus invites you to follow him. Let me just remind you, in your life and future, following Jesus is always an invitation for transformation. That he who began a good work in you, Scripture says, will be faithful to complete it. But it's also an invitation to carry on a legacy, to live out the mission and the message of God's love in this world. And it's also an invitation for relationship. It's the simple fact that God wants to know you and be known by you. And don't be misled. Following Jesus will not always be easy. But it will always, always, always be worth it. You see, I believe that Jesus' invitation that we read tonight to this this guy, Levi, who knew in himself that he didn't measure up, I believe that his invitation to follow me echoes over 2,000 years. And I believe it's heard over your life today. And that Jesus would look at you and that you could have the confidence that I'm fully known and yet fully loved by him. And Jesus would invite you follow me. For Levi, Luke's gospel, remember it tells us he had to leave everything to follow him. Jesus is the one who said, but what would it profit a man if he gained the whole world and yet loses his soul? What is worth hanging on to? What amount of money, what dream or hope or relationship would ever be worth 
trading in a relationship with the living God for all of eternity, a relationship that promises to transform your life into the person he desires you to be, and I believe that's the person you desire to be. It's a, it's a relationship that, that gives you meaning and value and purpose where you realize that you are a cog in the machinery of something that is much, much greater than you. You're a part of the kingdom of God here on this earth. And that he has the great goal of knowing you and loving you for all of eternity. And like I said when I started, some of you I would assume you, you haven't, the jury in your mind is still out on Jesus. And I would say the call of Jesus is heard over your life today where he would look at you in the eye and say, follow me. And for those of you maybe who say, yeah, 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 I've been a Christian a long time. I think still today, the call still echoes over you and says, follow me, walk with me. Allow me to be at work in your life. Let me be the driving force and passion of your life. And so I would ask you, as we worship and wrap up our time, I'd ask you to respond to his call. For you to rise to your feet and to worship him and say, Jesus, you're worth it. And I'm committing to follow you, to answer that call. And so, Father, as we wrap up, we want to respond. We don't want to just hear something and have our response be just that we listened. God, our response is more than just that we took notes. God, we want our response to be a dialogue, a moment with you. And so we pray as we sing these next few songs that you would meet with us. And for every student here, I pray that they would hear your voice and, and the power of your invitation to leave all and to follow you. So Jesus, meet with us in this moment. Thank you, God, that you would look at us and that you would love us, that our relationship with you would not be built up on our own merit, but that it would be based on your amazing, merciful gift of Jesus, our substitute. God, thank you that you don't keep score, that you instead keep promises, that Jesus would hang on a cross and that he would ask the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me so that we could hear the promise from you, God, that I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, thank you that we're invited into this relationship and now we want to respond in this moment to your beckoning call to follow you. And so to you, Jesus, we worship you and we say yes.